please stand for the reading of God's word? I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I may known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you, you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This was John 17, 14 through 26. God's word. If you have your Bibles, please keep them open to John 17 as we pray together this morning. God, we are thankful for your word and certainly grateful for the words of your son on our behalf as he prays for us here in John 17. Allow us to hear and understand and have joy in hearing his prayer for us this morning. Do your work in us today, Lord, we ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. Eleven years ago, when my wife Jessica and I were first getting to know each other, I realized pretty quickly that I liked her and wanted to spend more time with her. Her college ministry group and my college ministry group had been on a ski trip together, and on the ride home, we actually wound up sitting next to each other and chatting for the five or six hours that we had on the ride about our favorite authors and our favorite musicians. And I realized that I really liked her. But even though I knew I liked her, I wasn't sure that the feeling was mutual. When I asked her if she wanted to get coffee, and she told me that she needed to wash her car, I interpreted that as a bad sign. <laughs> I figured that she obviously was not impressed with my taste in music. But I thought about it, and I gave it one more shot, and so I asked her again the next week, and to my surprise, she said yes. And now, looking back, it's funny to me to think about how uncertain I was about what she was thinking and feeling. 
I was pretty much convinced at the time that she did not like me, and she was trying to politely just drop me like a hot potato. But then, a couple years later, on our wedding day, when she said, I do, I didn't have that uncertainty anymore. I didn't have to wonder anymore what she was thinking. There was no more wondering. As we read in the the, the words of the high priestly prayer here in John 17, we receive some of that same type of confidence in hearing the words of Jesus as he speaks with his Father about us, along with the 11 disciples who were there to hear it firsthand. Though he will soon depart from them, and they will face tremendous hardship in the years that follow, they will never have to wonder, they will never have to be uncertain about Jesus' heart for them. And for all Christians, when there come moments in life that cause us to wonder whether He is near or whether He cares, or maybe whether He is punishing us for something, we will need these words, the words of John 17. They will help us. They will reassure us. They will cause us to remember that we need not wonder what He longs for and whether He loves us or not. For the disciples who are standing on the verge of being left with a leadership responsibility that they are not ready yet to carry, and the mission of proclaiming Christ to the nations, this is the sort of reassurance that they need. On the night before his death, Jesus reveals to them in a new way, in a deep and beautiful way, the depth of his affection for them in this prayer, affection that would ultimately drive him to die for them. And because he states in verse 20 that he is not only praying for them, but for all who would believe after them, we know that this prayer is for us as well. This is the heart of Christ, the depth of his affection for us, which compels him to die for us. Jesus is offering these prayers aloud and in their presence, as we have already observed, to be recorded here in the Gospel of John so that it would be a faithful reminder 2,000 years later of his heart for us. We never have to wonder. We never have to fear whether he longs for our good or whether he loves us or whether he has secured eternity for us and lives to intercede for us at the right hand of the Father, as we read in Hebrews 7. Intercession is an important, if overlooked, aspect of Jesus' love for us. It is his ongoing work taking place even right now to plead our case before God, to intervene on our behalf. He is our great high priest who carries the responsibility of the priesthood, the priesthood that served in the ancient temple representing the people of God before his presence. But Jesus is a better one, a better priest who serves in the true tabernacle, the true temple built by God and not by man, according to Hebrews 8. Unlike the priests in the ancient temple in Jerusalem who had to make sacrifices of their own to atone for their own sin before entering the presence of God once per year to mediate on behalf of the people, our great high priest lives there because he had no sin of his own to keep him out. So he is able to make this petition every moment of every day until all of his people enter with confidence into God's presence to receive mercy and grace and to enjoy him forever, as we read in Hebrews 4. And these words in John 17 are his constant prayer for us, removing all uncertainty about what he loves and longs for. Here in the closing verses of this prayer, Jesus is focused on the mission of the church in the world. 
He knows that he is leaving the disciples and all believers with a difficult assignment. I have given them your word, he says in verse 14, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world just as I am not of this world. Jesus has spent his ministry proclaiming the holiness of God and calling people to repentance. He has announced the coming of God's kingdom and told people that the only way to enter it is through faith in God's merciful provision. Some have believed and followed him by faith, but others have rejected him and hate him passionately enough that they are on their way even as he utters these words to arrest him and have him executed. These are the two responses to Christ. There is no middle road. And they are the two responses to his gospel, the message that the disciples are being sent to carry into the world after his departure. So as he prepares them for this responsibility of leadership, he's preparing them for the responses that they will receive. Some will believe, most will not. The world, which is shorthand, especially here in the book of John, for those who reject Christ, will hate them for it. It's a startling thing to hear, but it is not the first time he said it. We've discussed it already in our study through the book of John. We've seen it already in our examination of this gospel. Jesus doesn't want the disciples or any, any Christian who's reading this book centuries later to be blindsided by what lies ahead or by the difficulty of the mission that they are being assigned. It will be difficult and costly even to follow Christ because as he prays, his people are not of this world just as he is not of this world. So they shouldn't expect to be treated differently than he was. Christians don't fit in here. The Apostle Peter would later write, Christians are strangers and exiles in this world. And so as they take up the message of Christ, declaring the holiness of God among the people, calling those people to repentance, announcing the kingdom, and telling the people that the only way in is through faith in the mercy and grace of God, the response will be the same as the one he received. Some will believe. But just as Jesus' teaching caused people to rage against him, even to the point of his death, so should the disciples expect to be treated. And most of them will die for serving Christ. But despite the opposition that they'll face, they will not be overcome. They will not fail. They will succeed. But it's not because Jesus gives them a winning strategy or a well-crafted marketing campaign. Those things will not guarantee the success that Jesus has guaranteed here or in his teaching to them elsewhere, when he says that nothing, not even the powers of hell itself, will prevail against his church. No, their success in leading the church and proclaiming the gospel does not hang on whether or not they have the best methods of evangelism or leadership skills or the most effective strategies. I'm not saying that those things are unimportant. I do think that Jesus wants them to be strategic and thoughtful about how they carry the responsibility that he's leaving them with, he doesn't want them to be careless or haphazard about it, but the church will prevail not because of strategy, but because of Christ. They can have peace even when they face opposition, even when they face death, because they belong to Christ and because he prays for their mission and for them. There is great comfort in that because Jesus has the power to affect the outcome that he desires. He prays for the faithfulness in the Word of God, the unity of believers, and for their perseverance. And because He is the Son of God, He can bring the answer that He desires to these prayers. 
These are the things that he knows will be put to the test. In the pressure that will come for the disciples as they lead in the first century church, throughout the centuries that will follow through all of church history up to right now, these things are under pressure from a world that rejects Christ. And for the remainder of our time this morning, we will look at each of them individually. So first, Jesus prays for the faithfulness of his people, specifically to the word of God. He says in verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Like intercession, sanctify is a a little bit of a churchy word that I think requires a little bit of explanation. It's used to convey two ideas that are similar but not identical. And the first and most common, the way that we typically use this word, is to, to, to sanctify something is to make something holy. Often this is what we mean when we talk about the process of sanctification. It is the lifelong work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian to make them into the man or woman of God that he has called them to be, to refine them and make them holy. And he certainly does desire, Jesus certainly does desire that his people would be transformed by the Holy Spirit's work in them, but I think he's using this word differently here. It's interesting that in this verse, Jesus doesn't say, your word is true, although that would be a true statement. He doesn't use the word true as an adjective to describe God's word. He says, your word is truth, meaning there is no other standard by which God's word can be measured. It is the standard, the bedrock on which everything else stands and the standard by which everything else will be measured. And Jesus wants them to cling to that knowing that it is the truth. The word sanctify can also be used to describe the way that something is set aside for a holy purpose. So in the Old Testament, the priests who served in the temple were sanctified because they were set apart for a holy purpose, to serve in God's holy presence. Or in the New Testament, it is the word used to describe how all believers, all Christians, are set apart by God to serve a holy purpose in our own lives. And that's the way I think Jesus is using this word here, because he also uses it of himself in verse 19. If you're reading the English Standard Version, like I am this morning, that verse says this, And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. And what is not immediately clear to us is that the words consecrate and sanctify are actually the same word in the Greek, the original language of this passage. And since we know, we can be certain Jesus is not praying that he would be made holy because he is already holy, we can conclude that he is using the the, the sort of second definition, the second use of this word. He is saying that he has set himself apart to serve a holy purpose to accomplish the work of salvation so that the disciples can be set apart for God's holy purpose in their lives, to cling to the truth in a world that has denied it. He prays that Christians would be set apart in the truth, distinct from the world that denies it, rescued and redeemed by it, and on a mission to proclaim it. This is one of the things that he longs for, and he prays for it because he knows that Christians cannot do it on their own, but will need God's intervention to succeed. It will not depend on their strategy or their skill, but on the mercy of God to cause this mission to succeed. Second, Jesus prays for the unity of believers. 
It's not hard to see that this is a, a priority to Jesus since he, since he mentions it four times in this prayer, three of which are in the passage we're focusing on this morning. He asks that believers would be one even as we are one, in verse 11, and that they would be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, in verse 21. His longing is that Christians would be so united that their fellowship would mirror his own fellowship with the Father. That is an amazing and mind-boggling thing for him to say. It would have been good and encouraging if he had simply prayed that Christians would be united, that they would be supportive of one another, present in each other's lives and loving toward one another. But for him to pray and expect that the disciples and those who would come after them would image the, tr- the unity of the Trinity is astounding. It goes beyond mere friendship. Because the union of the Father and the Son and the Spirit are three persons united in one singular God. The three are not separate, but a unified whole. It is what the Apostle Paul was getting at when he wrote to the church in Corinth, which was splintered into factions and was certainly not united. And so he writes to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, "...just as the body, the human body, is one and has many members..." And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. The church, made up of many members, is one body. It is united with a shared purpose and a mutual reliance on its members. Paul continues with his illustration of the church as a body, writing, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Elsewhere, Paul writes about the unity of the church by describing it as a family we have been brought into, the household of God in which we are brothers and sisters, unified and united by the blood of Christ. This is the unity that Scripture affirms for the church and the oneness that Christ prays for. Many people read this passage and Paul's writing on the unity of the church and conclude that this objective has failed, that Christ's prayer has not been answered. They observe that Christians are more divided than ever and more so every day. The third edition of the World Christian Encyclopedia, published by one of my professors at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, notes that There are over 200 unique denominations of Christianity in the United States alone, and amazingly, over 45,000 around the world. That's a lot of branches of the Christian tree, each with its own traditions, its own scholars, and, as is typically emphasized, its own doctrinal positions. So, people say, the Unity Project has failed. Christianity is splintered beyond repair. We may even feel that way sometimes when we drive past half a dozen churches or more on our way to Westgate on a Sunday morning. Christians have divided over everything from how baptism works to the color of the carpet in the church building. Each of the 45,000 plus denominations that exist in the world today are the result of disputes over what it really means to believe and live as a Christian. So, some have said, The solution to this problem is to do away with doctrine, to quit debating over it. I've heard people say that all that doctrine does 
All that theological reflection does is divide Christians into camps. Calvinists and Armenians. Christians who baptize babies and Christians who don't. Those who speak in tongues and those who don't. Those who pray to saints and those who don't. Believers who say that the world was made by God in six 24-hour days and those who say that it was made over the course of millennia. The list goes on and on and on endlessly. So some people conclude that if we are ever going to have true unity as believers, we need to stop arguing over these things. They point to verses like Paul's comment in 1 Corinthians 2 when he said, I have resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So there is an appeal to keep things simple, to not overcomplicate things with divisive issues. And that if we draw lines in the sand over doctrinal issues, we are not showing love toward others, but contempt and pride that we have the right answer. So stick to the essentials and stop getting bogged down in theological and doctrinal positions that don't ultimately matter anyway. But reading the rest of Paul's letters, if we read really any of the rest of what he wrote, we notice that he does not shy away from disagreement over matters of doctrine and theology. Paul even publicly rebukes the Apostle Peter for what he described in Galatians 2 as conduct which was not in step with the truth of the gospel. He clearly held a doctrinal conviction that compelled him to speak out about Peter's behavior. Paul was a scholar. He had spent his his life studying the Old Testament. And once he met Christ, he spent the rest of his life preaching and teaching and writing things that would help Christians to understand with precision the mission of Christ to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament. Paul understood that God is not haphazard or indiscriminate in his plans or in his words. He is precise. Every word of inspired scripture carries weight and is carefully selected. So Paul did not shy away from disagreements over the right interpretations of God's word, right doctrines, or the right teaching. And neither did Jesus himself. He told the disciples in chapter 16 that the Spirit that he would send to them would guide them into all truth. That promise that Jesus made in in chapter 16 does two things. First, it encourages Christians to remember that God is at work to raise up people who are mature in faith and understanding. And second, it reveals that there is objective, rock-solid truth which the Spirit reveals to his people in the Word of God. In study of this passage this week here in John 17, I read that this this one scholar argues that this passage in John 17 is one of the most misunderstood and misused in the entire New Testament because of the, the way that people sometimes use it to say, stop worrying about the details and just get along. Jesus is not saying that. It is a careless and dangerous thing to neglect pursuit of truth proclaimed in Scripture, even if it is in the name of pursuing unity. As we have seen already, the truth revealed in Scripture is the thing that he prays they will cling to and that they will remain faithful to. So what are we to take away from Jesus' prayer for unity and oneness among believers? Well, first, I think we should observe who he is praying for. He says in verse 20, as we've already noted, I do not ask for these only, meaning the disciples who are present with him in this scene, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, 
Jesus is praying for those who cling to him by faith. He is not praying for unity between those who believe and those who do not. That unity cannot exist, according to verse 14. The sort of unity that Jesus is praying for, the unity that images the Trinity, cannot exist between those who believe and those who don't. In order to believe, people must receive and accept the gospel preached by the disciples, as Jesus points out in verse 20. So doctrine is at the heart of the issue here, but not as something to avoid, but as something to pursue. Jesus wants the church to listen and to think carefully to the preached word, to think carefully about the preached word. He wants the message to be handed down from generation to generation, not merely as a tradition that washes over us, but as a treasure that we hold dearly. The ground of the unity that Jesus longs for among his people is the word of truth, not passively received, but examined, explored, carefully considered, believed, applied, and rejoiced over. This, things that, this means that there are things Christians can and must agree on. And for everything else, everything that doesn't meet that standard, there is room for faithful Christians to charitably disagree. But we should note there are some things Scripture makes clear are non-negotiable. That Jesus is God's Son, that the only hope for humanity which is inwardly enslaved to sin apart from him, is his son, that his death is a substitutionary atonement for his people, that he was raised from the dead, and that justification before God comes by faith alone and not by our work. There is no room for movement on these things. Scripture does not budge on them. Our answers to some critical questions must align, and they must be rooted in Scripture. And these three questions, which you'll see on the screen behind me, can help clarify essential doctrine necessary for true biblical unity. First, what is the gospel? What is the good news that Christianity proclaims? Second, what does it mean that we are saved? What is it, when we say that we've been saved, what, what do we mean when we say that? And third, what have we been saved from? Have we merely been saved from ourselves? Or have we been saved from the wrath of God against injustice and sin, our sin? The answers to those questions determine not only whether we are actually Christians at all, but also unite us with believers around the world and throughout church history. Knowing the rock-solid truth of the gospel revealed by God in Scripture and the joy and honor that it produces in our hearts toward God is what binds us together in a way that images the union of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Knowing these things and treasuring them and rejoicing in God's presence because of them is what binds us together. The foundation of our unity as Christians, the very heart of it, is our shared belief in who God is and what He's done, principally through His Son, who lived a perfect, sinless life in order to die in the place of His people under the just wrath of God against our sin. This is what Jesus longs for as he prays for unity and our oneness as believers. Holy Father, he prays in verse 11, keep them in your name that they may be one. Hold them together. 
by binding them to the truth, handed down to them by a family tree of faith that is rooted in the essential and fundamental truths of who you are and what you've done, revealed in your Son and recorded in Scripture. And third, Jesus prays for the perseverance of believers. He says in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. As we've seen already here in the high priestly prayer of John 17, Jesus is explaining something, and it cannot possibly be an explanation for the Father's benefit. So clearly Jesus is saying this for the benefit of the disciples and those who read these words. He is teaching them and teaching us something here. Namely, that his desire is not that we would be spared the hardship that will come from being his people in a world that has rejected him, but that we would not be lost to the evil one or simply to evil. He knows that his people will suffer. That's a theme we've seen repeated in John's gospel. He knows that Christians throughout the ages will suffer, and he does not ask, he does not ask, that they would be whisked away from the storm. Instead, he prays for their protection in the midst of the storm. Now, this is something we need to stop and think about. Christians are called to be in the world, but not of the world. Residents here, but not citizens. That is the calling. Jesus could have prayed that the disciples would never suffer. He could have prayed to deliver them to some faraway island, unreachable by those who want to do them harm, where they could live in peace and happiness forever, for just live out their lives, just content on a beach somewhere. He could have commanded hosts of angels to surround them, making a barrier between them and the world around them, guarding them from persecution, arrest, imprisonment, and execution. He could have prayed these things. But just as he does not call angels to his own defense in the face of abuse, he does not ask that of the Father on behalf of the disciples. He does not want them withdrawn from a world that hates them and the message that they proclaim. That may sound cruel or harsh. Wouldn't Jesus' love for them have motivated him to pray for their protection and deliverance from all this pain? Wouldn't his heart compel him to guard them from harm? Isn't Jesus compassionate and caring? It doesn't seem like it if he is sending his friends, his closest friends, into the lion's den, a world that he knows will hate them. This is not how we think of friendship or compassion or love. Our measure of those things is how earnestly we desire that people we love are able to avoid pain. And that is often the way that we pray for people that we love, that God would alleviate their pain or, or, or remove it entirely and give joy in its place. Why doesn't Jesus say this? Why does he say what he does say? He could have just prayed, protect them from the evil one. But he makes an emphatic statement and says, I am not praying that you would take them out of this world, that you would whisk them away from danger. It is a strange moment in this prayer, but it reveals something profound about the responsibility that Jesus is giving the disciples and all Christians. He loves them. Of course he does. But he also loves people from the furthest nations of the world who are yet to hear and believe the gospel, some of whom currently hate him and the disciples. 
He loves those that the Father has given to him, and none whom the Father has given to him will be lost, as he said in chapter 6. So Jesus does not want his friends whisked away from the world, but in it, proclaiming the gospel and calling the, the people of the nations to repentance and faith. And he prays that as they go, as they suffer, as they endure the hardships that this mission will surely bring into their lives, they will be protected from the schemes and traps of the devil who will use their pain against them to make them doubt God's faithfulness or his love or his ability to do all that he has said he will. So it is not a lack of love that produces this prayer, but an incredible abundance of it. We see that throughout this passage. What's underneath and motivating his prayer here at the end of John 17 is his desire for the world to hear the gospel. He prays for their unity in verse 21, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He prays that the world will know him and his love in verse 23. He longs for the world to know the truth and to believe. And he says in verse 26, I've made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. So the disciples are commissioned to carry the message. Jesus will continue to make his Father known by sending out messengers, heralds of the kingdom, into the world because he loves those who will come to him by faith. So it makes sense that he would say in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. It is Jesus' overwhelming, abundant, and bottomless love that compels him to pray, not that his people would never suffer, but that as they do in the course of their mission, none would be lost. He prays for these things, these three things here at the end of the high priestly prayer, for the unity of believers, for their faithfulness to the word of God, and their perseverance in the face of suffering and hardship, because he knows that these things will be continually tested. He knows that as pressure rises, the bonds of Christian fellowship will be strained. When his people will be tempted to forget that the differences between us are negligible when we hold them up next to what unifies us under our shared Savior. We've seen this exact scenario play out this year in churches across this country. As churches have navigated the the pandemic, there were lots of questions, new questions every week, it seems like, about how to gather, whether to gather, uh, whether whether Zoom church is really church, whether to wear masks, or whether to sing together, along with about a hundred other questions. And it seems like for each one of those questions, there was a wide range of responses and answers. I heard from pastors that I know personally about their churches almost splitting over whether or not to require people in attendance to wear masks during the worship service. And in the face of eternity, united by a common Savior and brought into his family as brothers and sisters amid a lost world, what a pathetically silly thing that is to compromise the fellowship of Christ's body. But we are silly people. So silly things get to us, and Jesus knew that, and so he prayed for unity. He prayed for our faithfulness to the word because he knew that we would be tempted to compromise it. We would be tempted to force our presuppositions onto God's word rather than letting God's word shape us. Though that is certainly a concern in our day, we see that happening all around us all the time. It has been a temptation for everyone who reads scripture because scripture, the word of God, confronts our very nature. 
It points a finger right in our faces and calls us sinners. It tells us that we are broken and without hope of fixing ourselves. And it tells us that some things are off limits, and many of those things are things that we love. Nobody likes that. So we are tempted to bring our opinions to the Bible, or to avoid certain parts of the Bible, or to explain away certain things as products of their moment in history, outdated and anachronistic. We read things that make us squirm, and rather than yield to them, we are tempted, as Adam and Eve were, to ask, did God really say that? So Jesus prays that we will hear the word and cling to it, to be shaped by it, so that we can hand the truth, the truth, to others in our lives. And he prays that we will persevere because he knows that there will come moments in the lives of all of his people, even the most devoted and pious people, when they are tempted to doubt him. Because the devil is good at pushing our buttons. He looks for the things that will cause us to wonder about Christ's love, and he presses hard on them. Perhaps through personal grief and pain, or through the pain of those that we love. Perhaps through the shame that we feel when we fall yet again to a temptation and a struggle against a persistent sin. Perhaps through the moral failures of teachers and leaders in the church who we trusted and admired. He is good at finding the things that hurt us and pressing on them. So Jesus prays, not that we would be spared the pain, but that we would not fall prey to the devil's trap. Were it anyone but Christ making these requests, the outcome would be in doubt. Because each of these things are precarious. At times, it seems like they're hanging on by a thread. When the disciples scattered in fear for their own lives on the night of Jesus' arrest, on the night that this prayer, I mean, just a couple of hours after this prayer was uttered, they scatter in fear for their lives. And when they did, it seemed that everything had fallen apart. And if it were anyone but Christ making this appeal... If success hung on the strength of anyone else, that thread would have snapped. But because it is Christ, our great high priest, who is offered once for all the sacrifice to atone for sin, who makes us clean by the spilling of his own blood, and who has risen in victory over death itself, there can be confidence. And because he has given us this glimpse into the depths of his heart for us, we understand all the more the love that compelled him to take up the cross for us. So we need not wonder what he is feeling toward us. He has put to words his affection, his longing for our good, and for the good of those who do not know him yet but will, as he works through our lives to reach the lost. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, today we rejoice in your love for us. We rest in the intercession of your Son for us, in the trials that we face and the pain we endure and the hardships we encounter in this life. We trust in your sovereign grace and your protection. Cause us to rejoice this morning, knowing that we have a great high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us and who has made his longings for our good clear, and whose love compels him to die in our place and send us in the world, into the world to reach his lost sheep. We come before you today with our praise, Lord, and with this prayer of gratitude in the name of your Son. Amen.